Job had been lying in unrelieved misery now for months with open sores all over his body. During those months, he had endured the grief of seven dead sons and three dead daughters. All of his wealth had vanished in one afternoon. It says later in the book that his wife regarded him as repulsive and his brothers as loathsome. And the little children who walked by despised him as he sat on the ash heap outside the village. At first, Job had borne these calamities with equilibrium and faith. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? But as the misery drug out over the months, Job wavered in his confidence that God was for him and not against him. And in defending himself against Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, he began to say things that were unwarranted and wrong about God in order to justify himself. He complains to God, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? Why do those who know him never see his days? The Job, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, had suggested to Job, the reason you are suffering so severely is because you have grievously sinned. If you could find out what that terrible sin was, repent of it, God would take away this suffering. And Job silenced those three friends by arguing from experience, from his own character, that there is no correlation in the world between righteousness and prosperity and between suffering and uh, wickedness. Many of the most wicked people prosper most. And many of the most righteous people suffer most in the world. There's no clear correlation there. And so these three friends are silenced and they have no way to answer. Then in chapters 32 to 37, a, a new young man appears on the scene that we saw last week named Elihu. And Elihu is very unhappy with what he's heard both from Job and from the three friends. He rebukes the three friends because they have no answer for this good man and why this righteous man is suffering. And he rebukes Job because Job had said things that were evil about God in his attempt to justify himself before his three friends. Elihu's point is that Job is righteous. There's no doubt about that. And yet he's not perfect. God is not punishing him for sin. He's not treating him as an enemy, but as a child and a friend. God had originally allowed the sufferings of Job to commence in order to demonstrate to Satan and to the heavenly hosts and to all those who had eyes to see on the earth that the glory of God is of superior worth in the heart of Job than is the worth of family or possessions or health. And Job had been victorious. He had not cursed God. He had blessed and worshipped God when he lost his family and his possessions and his health. But as his suffering went on, a new purpose 
of God was at hand, Elihu said, namely to purge out of Job the remnant of pride. There was a sediment of pride at the bottom of Job's life, unseen in the clear water of his righteousness. And when his life was shaken by suffering, that sediment of pride was stirred up and became visible and manifested itself in sinful words against God in his suffering. And Elihu says, the reason you're suffering for such a long time, Job, is because God has a sanctifying, loving, purging work to do in your life. So what have we seen so far? That brings us up to where we were last week. Two purposes for suffering in Job's life. One, to demonstrate the glory of God and its worth. And the other is to refine Job's righteousness and increase his holiness. His pain is not the pain of a executioner's whip. It's the pain of a surgeon's scalpel. God is treating him as a loved patient or child. You remember, don't you, the the words of our Lord Jesus. Didn't he say that it's better to suffer the pain of a gouged out eye than to allow any sin to remain in your heart? And I think we could generalize from that that no pain is too great to endure in this life if it will help us submit more fully trust more fully and get all the insubordinate pride out of our lives. Now, toward the end of Elihu's speech in chapter 37, a thunderstorm emerges on the horizon. Elihu sees it coming and he sees in it the possibility that God is going to speak. And so he draws his words to a close at the end of chapter 37 And, indeed, God does speak out of the thunderstorm, beginning in chapter 38. And the question we raised this morning is, what does God have to say to Job? Chapter 38, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, let's stop there and think for a moment. Some people might say that since Elihu has been the one talking, these words might well apply to him. Elihu is the one who's been darkening counsel without knowledge. But that's not the case. Those words are for Job, not Elihu. And the reason we know they are is because when you get to the end of God's speech, which he has been addressing to Job all along... In chapter 42, verse 3, Job quotes these words from chapter 38, verse 2, and he applies them to himself. He says in Isaiah 42, 3, quoting God in those words, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? So he quotes God's words as if to say, Yeah, I, I heard the way you began, and now here's my response. And his response is, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So Job takes this rebuke at the beginning of chapter 38 as applying to 
himself. And he sits and listens to what God has to say. God never says one word of criticism toward Elihu. And Job sits in quiet agreement, listening to the wisdom of Elihu. So in my understanding, Elihu is stage one in the answer that God has to give to Job about his suffering. And God's own words out of the whirlwind are stage two. You might say you need some clear theology taught by a human teacher and you need to see God in order to really handle your suffering. So let's follow as best we can this word from God to Job. Chapter 38, verse 3. Gird up your loins like a man. I'll question you and you shall declare to me. In other words, God says, you've been questioning me long enough. I've been in the dock long enough. I'm stepping out. You get in. I have a few questions to ask you, Job. And then he begins this long interrogation. And we're going to follow him step by step for a couple of chapters here so you can get the feel of what Job must have thought as the Almighty addressed him. It's a very strange interrogation, very unexpected approach that God takes as he looks at nature and animals. Let's begin with verses 4 to 7 of chapter 38. First, God focuses on the earth. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. In other words, you weren't there. You don't know how I did it. And you couldn't do it today if you wanted to. Verses 8 to 11, God focuses on the sea. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth from the womb? Answer was I. Job, I set the limits, not you. You weren't there. You don't know how I did it. You couldn't do it if you wanted to. Verses 12 to 15, the Lord focuses on the dawn, the light coming up over the horizon. He asked Job, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Of course not. You never did it. You can't do it. You don't know how to do it. I've always done it. I always will do it. That's my business, Job, and you don't have a clue. Verses 16 to 18, God focuses on the depth and breadth of the sea and the land. He says, Job, you never have even been to the bottom of the ocean. You've never walked around the earth. And you think you know enough? To call into question the way I run the world? You haven't even been out of hometown. That's the first half of chapter 38. It focuses on the world below. Now, in the second half of chapter 38, he says, okay, Job, let's lift our eyes. Let's look up. Let's see what's going on upstairs, if you have any knowledge about that. Verses 19 to 21, he queries him about the origin of light and dark. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness? You don't know where it is, Job. You can't do anything about this. I made it. I rule it. You have no power over it. You don't understand it. Verses 22 to 30, he asks him about snow and hail and rain and frost do you know anything about how to store up hail for the day of battle, Joe? Can you do that? You know how to pull that off? Do you know how to cut a channel in the sky so that rain comes down on a land where no man is, like I do every day? Or lift your eyes a little bit higher yet, Job. 
verses 31 to 33. Let's look at the constellations in the sky. Pleiades, Orion, Maseroth, the bear. Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Well, if not, Job, let's come on back down and talk about rain again. Let's, let's just stick with rain in verses 34 to 38. Something more manageable, maybe, for a man. Can you make it rain? Do you know how to whistle for the lightning so that it comes and says, here we are? Can you count the clouds with your wisdom? Or, perchance, Job, do my pastimes uh, stretch you beyond your ability? So whether we focus on earth or sea or dawn or snow or hail or constellations or rain, the upshot of all these questions is the same. Job is ignorant and impotent. He is utterly surrounded by mystery. Above, below, on the right and the left. He is surrounded by things he does not understand and over which he has no control. And we are too, even a couple hundred years into the scientific revolution. I hope that you don't think that because there are a few little scientific discoveries around today that these questions don't apply to you. If you do, you've really got your head in the sand. Because all the scientific discoveries of the last 200 years are, are like little sand pails of salt water scooped up out of the ocean of God's wisdom and run up onto the beach and poured into a little hole while the tide is rising. God is not impressed by our science. Neither should we be. And if we are, it's because we have blinded our eyes to the mysteries that surround us in God's world and in God's character. Then come the queries about the animals. Chapter 38, verses 39 to 41. God asks who Job thinks supplies the lions and the birds with their food. Who provides the raven its prey? When his young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? I do, Job. All over the world. All the birds in the world. I'm the one who supply their food. Can you do that? Try one. See if you can handle one bird all its life long. Verses 1 to 4 of chapter 39. What about the birth of the young? Do you know when mountain goats bring forth? Do you observe the calving of the hinds? Think of it, Job. I'm on top of all these things. Every time a wild deer in northern Minnesota gives birth, I'm there. I help it out. I stand it on its feet. I give it food. Or take the mountain goats in Switzerland or Nepal for that matter. Every time they have a little kid, I'm there. I pull it out. I stand it on its feet. I give it food. I know all these things, Job. Do you know anything about the 10 million events going on in the world right now over which you have absolutely no control or any knowledge at all? Tell me, Job. And knowing none of these things... What can you presume to tell me how to run the world? I know everything that's going on. 
I have a handle on every birth of every animal in the world at every moment. And you don't know anything. And you will suggest to me what is wise and unwise? Come on, Job! Think! Consider verses 5 to 8. Who has let the wild ass go free? Job, do you think there are wild and unpredictable animals in the world? Guess what? I turned them loose. I gave them the wilderness to play in. I gave them the mountains for pasture. You think there are wild and unpredictable animals? I've got them all under control. I know their habits. I turned them loose. I made them. Or consider the wild ox in verses 9 to 12. Do you know how to bind him and use him and put him into your service? No, he's mine. I use him, nobody else. Or, Job, here's one for you. Verses 13 to 18. How about the stupid ostrich? She lays her eggs and then she forgets them. She walks away and they get stepped on. She treats her young cruelly. Job, guess what? Who made the ostrich forget wisdom? I did. I made her stupid. I made mosquitoes in Minnesota. I made black flies on campouts. I did it, Job. It's all under control. The stupid ostrich and the mosquitoes in Minnesota are my idea. Of course, not all animals are foolish and useless according to God's design. Take the war horse, for example, in verses 19 to 25. Do you give him his might? Do you clothe his neck with strength? Job, you haven't a clue. I make horse necks. Nobody else. And finally, verses 26 to 30. Is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? No. So whether we consider the prey of lions and ravens, the birth of mountain goats, the freedom of wild asses, the insubordination of the wild ox, the stupidity of the ostrich, the might of the horse or the flight of the hawk, the point is one. Job is ignorant and impotent. It is unthinkable that this man should suggest to God how to run the world. Or any man. So beginning at chapter 40... God pauses to give this man a chance to respond, and he does. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will not Proceed further. So he's got the point, doesn't he? A finite creature who has no wisdom to run the world and 
for whom 99.9999% of all the events in the world are unknown and inscrutable, has no business counseling his maker what is wise to do in his case or anybody else's. Who do we think we are when we rebuke or murmur against God? God presses his case. He's not satisfied. Chapter 40, verses 6 through 9. He speaks out of the whirlwind. Gird up your loins like a man, Job. I'll question you and you declare to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Now that argument bothers me. Is God saying here, you just have to believe what I do is right because I do it. I've got an arm. You haven't got an arm like I've got an arm. When my arm does a thing, you accept it because it's my arm. Might makes right. Is that true? Is the message of God to Job, shut your mouth. I am God, I have infinite might, it is right for that reason. And my answer to that question is yes and no. Yes, in this sense. Where are you going to find a measuring rod for the righteousness of God? What courtroom are you going to take him to? To decide that what he's done is just? What judge will you introduce God to and make his case before? If you intend to call him to account and have some criterion outside of God, who will it be? God would no longer be God if he were to submit to anything outside himself. So yes, what he does is right. He's the definition of rightness. There's nobody to measure him by otherwise. But no, surely when we say the sentence, God is good, or God always does what is right, God wants us to mean more than God is God. God wants us to mean more by the sentence, God is good, than we mean by the sentence, God is God. Or God is infinite, or God is omnipotent. He wants us to see that his might does not make right in the sense that he could be capricious, or arbitrary, or irrational, and nevertheless right. Instead, he wants us to see that his might is purposeful. Chapter 40, verses 10 through 14. As I've meditated on these words, and I probably spent more time pondering these verses than anything else, I think what God is doing here is first of all summoning Job or challenging Job, if he can, to take over the moral governance of the universe. Come on, take it over. And if you can, I'll sit down and let you be 
my judge. But in summoning Job to do this, he's saying, in effect, the way he governs the universe, and it isn't arbitrary, and it isn't capricious, it isn't irrational, it's not a might make makes right kind of governance. Let's read it. Verses 10 to 14. Job, deck yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor like I do. Pour forth the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone that is proud and abase him. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then, if you can do that, I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can give you victory over me. Now, that's very different from saying, Job, acknowledge that might makes right no matter what I do. Instead, God says, look, Job, I employ my might to clothe myself with splendor and honor and majesty and to abase the proud and by implication to exalt the humble or the lowly or the believing and trusting. In other words... The rightness of God's might is not merely because it's God's, but because it is purposeful. And its purpose accords or is consistent with the excellence of his glory. God's goodness is this. Here's the way I would define the goodness of God. God's goodness is that he upholds his glory by abasing proud opponents and exalting and delighting with his glory those who are humble. And that is not whimsical. That is not capricious. That is not arbitrary. That is not irrational. That's the way a God who is infinite would act if he were a good God. And he is. And Job is to submit rather than Condemn this good God. So, there are two things that we've seen now about the way God brings Job to submission. First of all, he says, Job, there are 10 million events going on in the world right now of which you are totally ignorant. And if you're aware of any of them, you don't know how they work. And if you know how they work, you can't take them over and run the show. Therefore, you have absolutely no warrant, no right, no sense in admonishing, counseling, instructing, or advising me how to run the world. You're ignorant. That's step one. And the second thing that God does to bring Job to submission is to say, and when I exert my right and my sovereign power, my, my might, I don't do it whimsically. I do it purposefully. I abase the proud opponent. I exalt the humble dependent one. And I clothe myself with majesty and preserve it in this very way. Job, beware, lest in speaking to me to defend yourself, you fall into the very trap of those I'm going to oppose. And so Job submits. So let's turn to chapter 42 in conclusion and look at verses 1 through 6 and see the three steps of Job's submission, apply them to ourselves and stir ourselves up to join him in this submission. Three steps. 
First, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 42, Job answered the Lord, I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. In other words, here he submits, step one, to the absolute sovereignty of God. You can do anything you want to do. Nobody, not Satan, not sinners, not me, can thwart your purposes. You are sovereign. I submit. Second step of his submission, verse 3. Here he quotes God. Remember, from back in chapter 38, verse 2, and then he gives his response. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? God says, and Job answers, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So his second step of submission is to say, There is knowledge and there is wisdom so far beyond my ability to perceive and comprehend that I have spoken very stupid things without any knowledge. I submit to the superior wisdom of God. Step three in his submission is in verses four through six. And here again he quotes God and he gives his own response then. God says, Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you declare to me. And then Job responds, I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So his third stage of response or of submission is repentance. He admits that what he has said has been foolish and despicable, and he repents of it. So the lessons for us this morning in closing are plain and simple and Straightforward here and very profound. Therefore, number one, believe with all your heart in the sovereignty of God. Pray this morning. If that is a troubling and difficult reality for you, pray, even as we close the service, that God would give you a heart to submit and believe in his absolute sovereignty. Second, believe with all your heart that everything this sovereign God does is good and right. And if that's hard for you to believe, pray this morning earnestly that God would give you eyes to see and ears to hear the way Job did. Maybe you just need to walk out in the world tonight and look up at the stars and count the constellations and try to feel what Job must have felt. Pray that God would give you eyes to see the truth of this book. Third, repent of all the times in the past where you have murmured against God and found fault with your maker and questioned the wisdom and the rightness and the goodness of his providential dispositions in your life. Pray that you be forgiven those times. Repent of them. All such murmuring against God is sin. And finally, Be satisfied today and tomorrow and for all eternity with the holy will of God. Submit yourself to him. Rest in him. Believe that he withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly, no matter how hard it looks on the face of it. Be like George Mueller. At this wedding I had yesterday, I closed with this quote from George Mueller. You know the great praying saint from Bristol, England? February 6th, the Lord's Day, 1870, Mary Mueller died of rheumatic fever, his wife, of 39 years and four months. 
He had been pondering with her two days earlier Psalm 89 or 84, verse 11. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. He looked her right in the eye and he said, This is true, Mary. The Lord will not withhold anything that's good for us. She died. He preached at her memorial service. And this is what he said. I miss her in numberless ways and shall miss her yet more and more. But as a child of God and as a servant of the Lord Jesus, I bow. I am satisfied with the will of my heavenly father. I seek by perfect submission to his holy will to glorify him. I kiss continually the hand that has thus afflicted me. There's not a person in this room who does not need to submit more fully to God. And therefore, I summon you as we close to engage your heart to submit more fully to God. For some of you, that might be the initial act of submission, passing from the death of insubordination into the life of righteousness in Jesus Christ. For most of us, it will be simply crying out to God that he teaches to be more submissive to his good and sovereign and merciful will in our lives. O oh Lord Jesus Christ, our hearts tremble at the thought of anyone departing here in rebellion against the Almighty. Be pleased, I pray, before this day is done, to bring every soul to humble submission before your sovereign throne. Grant us to take refuge in Jesus Christ, our King and our Savior, who loved us and gave himself for us. For to him belong glory and dominion and power and authority and might and right forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen.